This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And the last thing Mr. Jackson told me before I got on that prison bus, you know, in August of 2009, before I got on that prison bus to get shipped off to serve that life sentence in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Mr. Jackson says, West, go out there and go be a coffee bean. Yo, what's cracking? Welcome back to the Jim Rome Podcast, the original side hustle. Two weeks off, but we were about to hit the ground running with episode 137 and my conversation with Damon West. Damon West is an author and a motivational speaker, but that was never the plan because after playing college football, working on the hill, and then training to become a stockbroker, Damon West's life unraveled. Meth, home invasions, a 65-year prison sentence from the state of Texas. It could have ended him. It should have ended him. But then he met somebody who gave him the key. The key to not only surviving, but thriving in the pen. A metaphor for not only his time in prison, but for the rest of his life. A metaphor for living that we can all benefit from. Damon's about to explain all of that and fill in the extraordinary details of his life before, during, and after prison. He is one of Dabo Sweeney's and Nick Saban's favorite stories, and it's about to become one of yours as well. Believe that. Let's hear it. Episode 137 of the Jim Rome Podcast with Damon West starts right now. Now, Damon, your story is absolutely amazing. I've been eager to talk to you about that on this podcast. Thanks for making time. First off, how are you? Man, I am well. And Jim, man, let me tell you something. Thank you for having me on your show today. You've, I mean, just, uh, I was telling you, know, my dad was a sports writer for 50 years. We used to watch Jim Rome, man. It's just, and, and I, when I told him I'm doing your show, he was blown away, man. He wants to be here in the room with you right now, but he can't. But thank you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, it's great to have you on. I appreciate that story too, Damon. So I know last night you met with Dabo Sweeney. Let me ask you, how did that go, and what did the two of you discuss? Man, so Dabo, so Dabo has this foundation called the All In Foundation, and and the foundation does so much amazing work. But Dabo has taken this "Be a Coffee Bean" message that I, that I go around speaking about, and because Dabo was really the first coach that really discovered me, uh, and the story about that's great. If we have time to get into it later, but. I went in last night because now his foundation has to do a virtual fundraiser, their annual event, the all-in the all-in event. And Dabo called me up. This is back in March. He said, "Look, man, I've got a vision for this this fundraiser this year. It's going to be a coffee bean, is what we want to make the motto around." And he said, "We're going to have everybody involved. I mean, the, the players, everybody's involved, and I need you to come to Clemson." And give the keynote for it, and so that's what I did last night. I went and did the keynote for it. Uh, the the, the fundraiser is going to play tonight, and then after the the foundation uh, event was over last night, my wife and I went to have dinner with with Dabo and his wife Kathleen, and uh, it, it was just great, man. One of the, and one of the things he said, I told him, I let off I was like, man, Dabo, you're not going to believe what I'm doing tomorrow. I'm talking to Jim Rome, and he's like, man, I love Jim. I've done Jim's show a couple of times. I love Jim. So. Just to let you know, man, you've got a fan in Clemson with Dabo Sweeney. That is really nice. I appreciate you sharing that story, Damon. Now, I want to definitely get into the coffee bean. We have lots of time for that, but let me start right here. And again, I'm going to lay out your entire story, but the fact is you were sentenced to 65 years in prison for robbery. You did a seven-year stretch. Given your background, how did you come to meet Dabo Sweeney and then earn his trust and respect the way you have? Yeah, Jim, you know, and, and there's a little distinction there. You know, it, it was, I got sentenced to, I got a life sentence, 65 years for, for burglary, robbery. My uh, bad. Was actually when right. you go stick a gun in someone's face. You're but, right. Uh, but mine was a bunch of burglaries. I was a meth addict breaking into people's homes in Dallas. And they called them the Uptown Burglaries because the Uptown neighborhood of Dallas where I was burglarizing. And, and a jury in Dallas back on May 18, 2009, they sentenced me to life in prison. After a six-day trial, six days, Jim, the jury went and deliberated for 10 minutes on my sentence. Mm. 10 minutes, man. I don't know how much law and order you watch. That's not a good a sign. Gone for, if a jury's gone for 10 minutes, they smoked you. Right. And um, so when I got out of prison, I made parole in 2015. I did seven years and three months in that maximum security prison. And, and actually, you know, the coffee bean comes into, into big play about making parole. And so I made parole in 2015. I get out. 
and I'm living in southeast Texas where I grew up, you know, and um, I really want to speak to college football programs all over the country because I have this amazing story. I played Division One college quarterback at North Texas back in the 90s. You know, an injury against A&M ended my career. And I've got this story. You know, I got into substance abuse. I went to prison. I got out. Now I'm out speaking to local church groups and high schools, but I want to talk to colleges, you know, but I don't have the vehicle to do it. A buddy of mine named Mike Order, he's, uh, he's with KHOU, the CBS station in Houston. He calls me up in January of 2017. He says, hey, Damon, I got an extra press pass to the Bear Bryant Coach of the Year Award. And he said the Bear Bryant Coach of the Year is when they named the best college football coach in America. He said the eight best coaches in the country are going to be in this room at the Toyota Center, and I can get you in. And so, man, I, after work, I went home, Jim, and I threw on my best, best suit that I had. It was, I had two suits at the time. I've been out of prison 14 months. I got a hand, two hand-me-down suits. I picked the best one. I drive the 90 minutes to Houston, and he sneaks me in the door of the Toyota Center, and I hit the ground running, man. And I'm talking to – I mean, you, you've got Wisconsin, you've got Penn State, you've got USC, you've got all these head coaches there, the big, the big boys. And every coach I meet, and I'm telling them about this, you know, this prison story, and I'm, I'm trying to give them the best elevator pitch I can, and it's terrible at the time, too, Jim, to be honest with you. And every coach I meet is slamming the door in my face, man. And they're not just being rude about it, but they're just like, hey, don't call us, we'll call you kind of thing. You know you're striking out. I'm seven of the eight coaches down. I'm in the, co- the, in the corner of the Toyota Center, and I'm licking my wounds, man. I'm licking my wounds, and I'm sitting there telling myself, Damon, just go home, man. Seven of these eight coaches told you, no, that last guy's going to tell you, no, you know he is. But then that voice kicked in my head, you know, that competitor. that says, Damon, you want to be a motivational speaker, man. And what kind of motivational speaker just quits, you know? And you survived prison, man. The stuff you survived, man, this is nothing. That last coach is going to tell you no, Damon. Before you leave, he has to tell you no. So, Jim, man, I watched, and I waited for my opportunity, and I stalked Dabo Sweeney around that room at the Toyota Center that night. And he's the most in-demand guy to talk to. They had just won the national championship two nights before. And Dabo never saw me coming, and I pounced on him, and I've got him up against the wall, and I'm giving him 10 minutes of an elevator pitch stuffed into one minute, man. And so it's 10 minutes of conversation into one minute. He'll tell you this day, it was like getting a drink of water from a fire hydrant. And after I'm done with this, this terrible elevator pitch, and I'm just, just blowing him back, he's like, hey, man, you got a card on you? Huh. So I gave him a card, and he said, hey, we'll be in touch. But, man, it feels like a no, Jim, because I, mean, I just, I mean, I went home that night. I remember thinking, man, I went 0 for 8, but I left it all on the field. And, then, you know, as an athlete, as a competitor, you want to leave it all on the field. And so I forgot about that night. And four months later, I get a phone call, get an uh, email from the director of football operations at Clemson, a guy named Mike Dooley. And Mike says, hey, man, Coach Sweeney met you at an award show in Houston. We'd love to have you come talk to the team. Do you have August 1st open? Jim, do I have August 1st open? Yeah, man, I, I got every first so. open. <laughs> I got nothing going on in my life at the time. And so I, mean, so I go talk to the Clemson football team, the Clemson Tigers, defending national champions on August 1st, wow. 2017. And when I'm done with my presentation, Dabo's got me up against the wall now. And he's like, that's the most amazing story I've ever heard. He said, I've never seen my players respond like that to a speaker. He said, man, you had them all locked in. They had to, they had to shut the Q&A down. He said, we never had to shut Q&A down. He said, have you been to Alabama yet? And I'm like, no, Dabo, I've been to Clemson, man. How am I going to get to Alabama? He said, well, I'll just text Nick Saban from the back of the room. We'll see what happens. And when I landed in Houston the next morning, Jim, I had a voicemail and a text message from the DFO at University of Alabama says, hey, we'll see you in Tuscaloosa in three weeks. And, then, and just like that, Dabo's kicked that big door open for me. But it didn't stop there, man. He got me in to other programs. He called head coaches up for me. And one year later, in August of 2018, I'm at my desk at work at this law firm where I work, the Provost Humphrey Law Firm in Beaumont, and I get a phone call. And the other end of the phone is a guy named John Gordon. And John Gordon's a guy that I know of being in the speaker world. John's a huge motivational speaker and author, and he's written – Books after books. He sold four million books. He's the energy bus guy. So I asked John, I'm like, John, man, if you're really John Gordon, how do you even know who I am, Damon West? He said, Dabo Sweeney, man. Dabo Sweeney can't quit talking about you and that coffee bean story. He said, Damon, write a book with me. We'll call it The Coffee Bean. It'll be a bestseller. He said, The world needs the coffee bean message. Now, this is back in 2018 when he's saying this. He said, The world needs this coffee bean message, Damon. And we did, Jim. We wrote the book, The Coffee Bean, came out last July. It's been a bestseller ever since. Sold over 100,000 copies in the first year. But it's all because of Dabo Sweeney. And that's a story I tell to corporations when I go speak to them, to salespeople, to anybody. Man, never be afraid to ask the question. Because if I didn't ask that question that night, then you wouldn't know who Damon West was. And you may not have ever heard the story of The Coffee Bean. 
It, it's an amazing response to him. The one thing I do know, I was in sales and I was miserable at sales, but the one thing that I did learn, and I'm getting this from you as well, it's not how many no's, it's how many yeses, and you only need that one big yes. And you got the one big yes at the end of the night for Dabo, and that opened up all these doors. Again, I really want to get to the coffee bean, and we will, but I want people to understand exactly what the story was about. As an example, I mean, you're obviously a really bright guy. You had a really good job. You came from a really good family. How and why did you turn to a life of crime? You know, the how and why of turning a life of crime, I, I think that it's, a, it's a, a, a more of a process. The, the answer is more of a process. The easy answer is substance abuse. You know, I got into substance abuse at an early age, um, and I had a bad belief system. And that's what I tell these athletes when I go speak all the time. You know, you, bad belief systems dog you out for most of your life. And the longer you hold on to a bad belief system, the harder it is to get rid of. And bad belief systems... They usually went out in the end, Jim. They're very hard to change, belief systems. And my bad belief system, even at 10 and 12 years old, was all I'm doing is drinking a little beer, smoking a little pot. You know, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not hurting myself. But I couldn't be more wrong. And I take this bad belief system with me in life, and eventually it becomes, you know, when I get hurt in college against A&M, it becomes cocaine and ecstasy and pills. And, but I'm still functioning. I go work in the United States Congress. I work for a guy running for president in 2004, raising money for him all over the country. And when he drops out of the race in 04, I go train to be a stockbroker with one of the biggest Wall Street banks in the world, UBS, United Bank of Switzerland in Dallas. And it was at that job as a broker that I was introduced to methamphetamine for the first time, Jim. And the big answer to your question is meth. Man, meth is a monster. And I tell these guys in each room, it's the most destructive, most addictive drug I've ever seen in my life. And when I started smoking meth in 2004, it took me no time to give everything away because that's what addicts do. We addicts, I'm in recovery today. But addicts, what we do when we're in our addiction, we give everything away. No one takes it from us. We give it away. I gave away my job, my home, my car, my sanity, my family, my, you know, my tethering to God. And I went from working on Wall Street to living on the streets of Dallas. I'm homeless. You know, I'm sleeping in, I'm sleeping in cars. I'm sleeping in abandoned buildings. I'm living in dope houses. And I start committing crimes to fund my drug addiction. And uh, you know, it starts off with you know, like car break-ins. It starts off with breaking into people's cars breaking into people's storage units, and eventually it escalates to home burglaries. And now I'm breaking into houses in the uptown neighborhood of Dallas where I once lived and beyond. And, and these burglaries, they went on for three years, Jim. I mean, it, it, you know, we, we evaded arrest for three years, even detection for three years. And, and by the time the, the justice system finally caught up with Damon West on July 30th, 2008, when a SWAT team came in a dramatic raid in this apartment I was living in, uh, they were angry with me. They were, they were up, and rightly so. Man, I've created victims all over the place. I've got a ton of victims, Jim, and I never skirt around that. My victims were the most important component to my story. It's why we have a criminal justice system, because of victims. And, I, and I've got a lot of victims out there. So, Damon, you, as you point out, they, they were angry. All right, so they finally close in. They get the uptown burglar. Man, how hyped were the cops when they finally found you? What was their reaction? What happened when they got you? Man, it was wild, Jim. So I'm, I'm, I'm in this, this apartment on July 30th, 2008. It's how I start out my presentation. I'm talking to a pro sports team, a college sports team, high school sports team, whatever. I start off with this scene, man. I'm sitting there on the couch with my meth dealer, this guy named Tex. I'm sitting there smoking meth with Tex, and I'm passing the pipe back and forth. And I'm telling Tex, Tex, I think the end is near, man. I think the cops are going to come get me pretty soon. You see, about 10 days before this, this guy I've been doing all these burgers with, this guy named Dustin, had been picked up by the Dallas Police Department. And I know it's just a matter of time before they get to me because they got my partner in crime in custody. And just as I passed the pipe back to Tex, I heard the window shatter to my right. And tumbling across my living room floor was this little canister going end over end. And it started to register what's going on in my mind as I'm watching this canister bounce across the floor like slow motion. And I left up off the couch, and when I got up, the canister blew up in my face. The flashbang grenade goes off. Bright white light, loud noise, blows me back on the couch. And when I come to, when I can see and hear again, this cop in full SWAT riot gear, man, he's got his boot on my chest, and the barrel of a machine gun is digging in my eye socket. And he's screaming at me, man, because my ears are ringing. He's screaming at me, don't move, don't move. And, and I look up at this guy, and I blink, and I'm like, man, don't worry. You know, don't worry. I'm not going anywhere. And cops are flooding into my apartment, and I heard one of them scream out, we got him. We got the uptown burglar. And I tell people all the time, Jim, you know, it doesn't matter how many lives I can possibly impact with my story and how many lives I can change in, in the coffee bean message. I will never be able to escape that name, that moniker, the uptown burglar. And that's, it's a very eye-opening example to a lot of young people that your consequences of your decisions stay with you for the rest of your life. 
So very clearly, I can see this is a message to young athletes that you talk to. Now, Damon, you met somebody, and correct me if I'm wrong, did you meet him on the inside or did you meet him right before you went in, but you met a Mr. Jackson. Who is that? So Mr. Jackson, so to understand Mr. Jackson, you need to understand the context of why I was in front of Mr. Jackson. Right after they sentenced me to life in prison, they put me in this little room, this little room that got a bulletproof glass there. And my mom and my dad, they give them one last visit with me. And this, they can't even touch me. I'm on the other side of the glass. The state of Texas owns me now. I just got sentenced to life in prison. My dad walks in first. He's in stunned disbelief, man. He's stoic. He just saw his son with all this promise in life get a life sentence in prison. And my, and my dad, Jim, you've got to understand my dad. My dad was the first sports writer in the part of Texas we live in, Port Arthur in southeast Texas. He was the first sports writer to put black athletes on the front page of a sports page, man. This is back in 1971. The athlete he broke the color barrier with was a guy named Joe Washington. You remember Joe Washington? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Joe Washington, when he was a high school running back in Port Arthur, he puts Joe on the cover of the football section. And, I mean, people go nuts, man. They break, his, you know, they break windows out on his house. They slit his tires. He's got a box of hate mail at home to prove what taking, you know, taking a stand and making tough decisions was like. My parents got thrusted into civil rights in the early 70s. And so he, he made his, you know, his sons, my older brother, my younger brother, and I read this hate mail growing up, you know, because he wanted us to understand what it was like to do the right thing. So I was raised with extremely socially conscious parents. And that's what my mom, who's going to do all this talking in this last little meeting right after my, 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 my sentencing, because my dad can't talk. He's just, he's just stunned. You know, my mom does all the talking. She's a nurse. She's used to traumatic situations. And so she did, the first thing she says is she says, baby, debts in life demand to be paid. And she said, you just got hit with one hell of a bill from the state of Texas. She said, but you did the things they said you did at that trial, Damon. You have to go and pay that debt to society. You owe that debt to society. She said, but you owe your father and I a debt, too. She said, Damon, we gave you all the opportunity, love, and support to be anything you want to be in this life. And, and they did, Jim. They, I've had a life of privilege and a life of opportunities, you know, and I threw it all away. And that's what she's saying, you know. She said, that's how you repay us with what we saw in that courtroom? She said, that's not going to work, Damon. She says, you owe your father and I a debt, too. And she said, here's the debt you're going to pay. When you go to prison, you will not get in one of these white hate groups, one of these Aryan Brotherhood-type gangs, because you're scared because you're the minority in there. She said, that's not going to work, Damon. You were raised in Port Arthur, Texas, a giant melting pot of a city. She said, we gave you a great moral compass, which you chose to not use. You were never raised to see race, and you're not going to start now. And she said, you will not get any tattoos while you're in there. And I, I always show the guys my sleeves, my arms. Man, I didn't get any tats the whole time in prison. And my mom said, no gangs, Damon. No tattoo. She said, you come back as the man we raised, or don't you come back at all. And this is tough love coming from any mother. Damon, I, I, yeah. can I just say I, I'm stunned. I, I'm stunned hearing that story. I'm stunned that your mother had the wherewithal to send you into prison with that message. I mean, nothing but incredible respect for her. But that is an amazing thing you're telling me. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's, I mean it, you talk about – but that's the thing. I mean, she's a nurse, and she's, she's a, such a good woman, and she's got this ability to compartmentalize. Like, nurses do, man. Nurses deal with trauma all day long in their jobs, and she's dealing with a personal trauma that she can, you know, she separate herself from it, but she gives me this directive, man, and it's a directive that saves, it changes the course of my life, and she, you know, she says, do you understand this debt you're going to pay, and I was like, yes, mom, I do, and I'm crying now, and so I go back to my pod in Dallas County Jail, and I've got about two months before the prison bus comes to pick me up from the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, and I'm asking all these guys in Dallas County Jail that have been to prison, what am I going to do? How am I going to survive? And they can see I'm scared, man. I'm scared to death. And, and, and they're loving it, man. They're really, honestly, they're loving it. And every guy I talk to, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, they're telling me the same thing. Man, you've got to get into a gang, West. You're crazy if you don't. You're going to die if you don't. You're 33 years old. You're going to the worst part of the prison system, man, where everybody in the building you live on has life. They call it the life sentence building. And you've got a life sentence, man. You can't survive without a gang. Let the gang fight for you, Damon. Be in the gang. Everybody's telling me that. Every race. Except this one guy, I mean, this old black guy named Mr. Jackson. And Mr. Jackson, you know, he's probably in his 60s, Jim. I don't know his real age. He had gray in hair, and, and he's what you'd call a career criminal, man. Jackson, he's been in and out of the system all his life. Four or five times he's been to prison. But he is the most positive dude I've ever met, Jim. And so he comes up to me one morning with this big smile on his face, and he says, you know, Wes, I've been watching how you're dealing with these knuckleheads and these dummies talking about you've got to get into a gang. He said, man, do not listen to these fools. He said, you don't have to get into a gang to survey. He said, man, that's the easy way out. He said, but let me tell you what prison's going to be like. Let me lace you up. And he, that's what he tells me. He said, the first thing you need, to, you need to understand about prison is prison is all about race. He said, race runs the entire institution of prison. He said, it's the most disgusting environment you'll ever see. 
He said, and because it's all about race, he said, you need to understand that you're going to a situation now where the whites aren't the majority in there. The blacks are. He said, and that means like when you walk in that pod and you see a television set and these benches in front of these televisions, that first row of benches, that's the blacks' benches. Don't sit on that bench, man. They'll smash your head in if you even sit on it. He said, the next row of benches for the Hispanics, man, for the essays. He said, don't sit on their bench either. They'll smash your head in too. He said that third row, if there's a third row of benches, that's for the white folks, man. That's where you sit. And if there's no bench, you sit on the floor. That's just the way the numbers work in there. So don't get into a wreck over race. He said because it's about race, you have to fight all the gangs in there, man. If you want your independence, first it's the white gangs. The white gangs get the first dibs on you, man. He said the Aryan Brotherhood, the Aryan Circle, the White Knights, the Woods. He said you're fighting them all, man. He said, and if you survive all, if you survive all that and you don't give in to their ideology of hate out of fear – and he said, we do a lot of things in life out of fear, West, but don't let this be one of them. He said, if you don't give in to that ideology, hate out of fear, he said, then you're going to fight the black gangs. And they're going to send the black gangs after you. And the black gangs are going to be happy to tee off on an independent white guy that will not get with his own race, and they got a free shot at him, man. He said, the Crips, the Bloods, the Gangster Disciples, Mandingo Warriors, he said, you're fighting them all. And he said, if you survive all that, and you can survive all that, you will earn the right to walk alone. And he said, you don't have to win all your fights in prison, West, but you do have to fight all your fights. And that's a lesson in life, Jim. No one's going to win all their battles in life. We can't, man. It's impossible. But he sees that I'm still like, I'm still like a deer in headlights, man. I've got all this fear about what he's described. And he said, let me, let me break it down to you another way. He said, I want you to imagine prison as a pot of boiling water. And he said, anything we put in that pot of boiling water is going to be changed by the heat and the pressure inside that pot. He said, I'm going to put three things in that pot of boiling water and watch how they change. A carrot, an egg, and a coffee bean. And so he walks me through it. He says, if I put a carrot in that pot of boiling water we call prison, he said, well, what happens to the carrot, West? And I said, well, a carrot turns soft in boiling water. He said, that's right. He said, the carrot goes, goes into prison hard, but the water, the prison, changes the carrot, turns him soft. He said, the carrot got beat, he got robbed, he got raped, many men got killed. He said, you don't want to be the carrot. He said, what about the egg? And I said, well, the egg turns hard, Mr. Jackson, like a hard-boiled egg. He said, that's right, West. He said, the egg has a shell which protects it physically, but inside that shell, that soft liquid core, his heart, has become hardened. He said, if your heart becomes hardened, you're incapable of giving or receiving love. And he said, if, if you're incapable of giving or receiving love, well, you've become institutionalized, and you will not come back as someone your parents recognize because your eggshell has swastikas tattooed all over it. And he said, what about that coffee bean? And I didn't know, Jim. I didn't have an answer from Mr. Jackson. And he said, if I put a coffee bean into that pot of boiling water we call prison, he said, now you have to change the name of the water to coffee. Because he said the coffee bean, the smallest of these three things, he said small like you, West, had the power to change the entire atmosphere inside that pot. He said everybody in life puts out energy, negative or positive. And he said whatever kind of energy you put out, you attract back. It's called the law of attraction. He said so if you want to walk around prison with a mean mug on your face and a scowl all the time, you want to look hard, what you'll actually do is attract the hardest people into your life. He said it can be a very dangerous, even, even deadly endeavor on the life's in this building. He said, but Wes, if you walk around that prison with a smile on your face and you let those guys know they're not getting to you, no matter what they do, they're not getting to you, he said, you will change that prison from the inside out. And he said, the best part about it, Wes, the other coffee beans in prison, the other positive inmates, they'll find you because of your energy. And the last thing Mr. Jackson told me before I got on that prison bus, you know, in August of 2009, before I got on that prison bus to get shipped off to serve that life sentence in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Mr. Jackson says, Wes, go out there and go be a coffee bean. Go be a coffee bean, Jim. That's it, man. And so if Mr. Jackson was shooting me straight, he was telling me the truth. That meant that the power to change this situation, any situation, is inside of me. It's not in the, the power's not in the hands of the criminal justice system, not in the hands of the guards or even the other inmates. It's inside me, and I have to give someone else that power. And if he's shooting me straight, Jim, if he's really shooting me straight, that means that maybe, maybe, just maybe, I won't just survive this experience, but maybe I can thrive in this environment. And so, the rest is history, man. Uh, Damn, let me ask you. I mean, it's an amazing story. But for instance, I mean, you probably, it probably took a moment or two to get your heads around that story or your head around it to figure out exactly what it meant. But, but did he tell you how one goes about becoming that coffee bean? No, he didn't, Jim. And that's, that's a great question you asked, man. No, he didn't give me an instruction manual, man. He didn't give me a booklet. And I got mad. I was angry with Jackson at one point when I first get to prison, man. Because when, when I got to prison, it was just like he said, man. It was rocking and rolling from the, the word go, man. I get in there, and it takes me two weeks to get through the white gangs. And, man, I'm, 
I tell I tell these guys in these rooms, man, you talk about fighting, man, I got in more than three dozen fights in prison, from county jail to the penitentiary, and I lost seventy five percent of my fights, Jim. I mean, I I got my butt kicked all over that place, but I won because I kept showing up, man. They could not they could not keep me down, and it took me two weeks to get to the white gangs, and then it took me, you know, another four weeks, and I'm fighting the black gangs still, and about six weeks into prison, man, six weeks into prison. Get up one Monday morning, Jim, and I, and I and I look in the mirror, and I'm I don't like the guy I see. The guy the guy that look, looks back at me is living in fear, man. And so I take it out. To the, I go out to the rec yard that Monday morning because I Jackson didn't give me an instruction book. He didn't give me a roadmap how to become this coffee bean. And I've got a real serious problem. Six weeks into prison, I'm becoming that egg, Jim. It is the it is the hardest environment I've ever seen in my life, man. Maximum security prison, and it, they try to break you down, and they do a damn good job of it. And so, man, I go out to that rec yard, and I'm going to earn some. If I've got to fight these guys one-on-one or sometimes more than one at a time all the, on the pods, I'm going to fight them on the rec yard, man. The rec yard, Jim, was the most segregated place of prison, man. It, it is, you know, Jackson said everything in prison is about race, and he was right, but that rec yard so segregated. Man, they got a sand volleyball court in the rec yard. No whites or Hispanics are allowed in that. I mean, it's only whites and Hispanics allowed on the sand volleyball court. You know, no blacks allowed. They got a handball court. All the races can play handballs, but but if you want to double up and play partners, you can't double up with someone from a different race. You just you just can't do it. You can't mix the races. Even in the weight stack, you want to lift weights and someone someone to spot you, work out with you, has to be the same race that you are. But I pass up all those sports that day, six weeks into prison, and I head straight to the basketball court. Jim, who do you think runs that basketball court in there? The well, I'm going to let you answer that. <laughs> the brothers, right? They run it, man. <laughs> and they and, and it's I mean. And that's the thing. But here's the deal, Jim. I grew up in Port Arthur, Texas, man. Port Arthur, I don't know how much you know about Port Arthur uh, geographically, but Port Arthur is a predominantly African-American town, a blue-collar town, refinery town. Man, I grew up being the only white guy at slumber parties, birthday parties, playing sports, man. I was always one of the only white guys, man. I grew up in an environment around blacks, man. I wasn't afraid of blacks when I got to prison. And that's one of the things the white gangs do. They try to make you afraid of it. I mean, I literally have fought Nazis to get where I am that day on the rec yard, six weeks into it, man. And I go out there, and I get myself in a game of basketball out there. And, and there's no white guys allowed in the basketball court. But I, and I, I force my way into a game, man, because I take the basketball after one of the games, and I'm not giving it back until I at least get a chance to shoot for teams. Because that's what they do after every game. They shoot for teams. That was the flaw that I saw where I could get myself into one of these games. And I've got this basketball in my hand. I'm not letting them have it back. They're threatening to kill me, man. The biggest guy out there, this blood from Houston named Jay Blood, man, he says, you know what, white boy, get up on the line and shoot that shot. I hope you make it. So I'm standing there at the free throw line that Monday morning in prison, six weeks into it, man. I've got this basketball in my hands, and if I miss this shot, Jim, they're going to kill me, man. I didn't disrespect the basketball court that day. I disrespected an entire race. But if I make it, they're going to let me play, but they're going to hurt me, Jim. But I got, you know what, I'm backed into a corner anyway. I've got to fight these guys regardless. So I steal my nerve, my nerve, I breathe in, I breathe out, and I sink my shot. I'm a team captain. And that began an odyssey of six days of the most brutal basketball I've ever played in my life, man. Because it wasn't just basketball. It was a fight for survival out there. And, I mean, this is, this is basketball in a life sentence building of a maximum security prison, man. There's no guards. There's no guard in the tower. There's no referees. There's no such thing as a foul. I mean, these guys are punching me, kicking, scratching. I mean, everything you can imagine is going on in that court. And I, and I hit them back where I can, man. I, I, I stand up for myself. And at the end of six days, man, the end of six days, Jay Blood, that guy from that Blood from Houston, the big guy out there on the court, man, the guy that runs the court, you know, after the game was over, he came up to me. He said, Wes, you pulled something off out here we had never seen a white boy pull off before, man. You took everything we had, and you gave it when you could. Man, you gave it. He said, that took guts, man. That took a lot of guts for you to do this. You don't have to worry about the blacks the rest of the time you're in prison, man. You're good with us. And, man, I belong, man. I finally found a way. And these guys honored that, man. They come to get me to play basketball with them all the time after that. The first thing I thought about, though, was Mr. Jackson. Because you can't just – your takeaway from the story can't be this white guy that was scared to death out there playing against all these black guys. We get that, man. That's contextually. We can see that. But your real takeaway is, man, these guys in the court, these black guys out there that have been conditioned with a bad belief system for 20 years, some of them, that a white guy doesn't belong in their world – they made the change. They made the change. They accepted me into their world, and they became coffee beans. We all became coffee beans on that basketball court. And after that happened, when the violence was over, man, and when the threat of violence was over, not hanging over my head, I had the ability, the freedom to go out there and try to find how to become that coffee bean. And I did. It took, it took a while, but, man, I became that coffee bean inside that prison. 
Got some chills, man. I've got goosebumps hearing a story like that. So, Damon, what about, so now you get out and you get paroled and you hit the ground running and now you're achieving dreams and now you're giving back. Now you're talking to college kids. For instance, Georgia linebacker, Natrez Patrick, he had gotten into trouble, a lot of trouble, arrested three times, suspended from the team, fought an addiction to pot. You had an idea for him, but a different sort of idea to help him. What was it? Well, so I just spoken to Georgia. It was in October of 2017, and, and, you know, I get back into Texas, and they called me up from Georgia. They said, man, look, our star linebacker, Natrez Patrick, got arrested for possession of marijuana. Can you talk to him? And so I was like, yeah, man, let me talk to him. So I get on the phone with Natrez, and, you know, Natrez is a black kid, inner city Atlanta, man, where he's from. He doesn't understand, you know, he doesn't understand how serious it is, the, the problem. Marijuana is kind of a cultural thing for him, and, it, and it's, it's something that a lot of programs deal with, you know. And, um, so and I'm trying to explain to Natrez how serious it is, and, and so I call back the guys at Georgia. I'm like, listen, man, you're about to lose this guy. About, I know a lot of Natrez is from prison. He's about to become a statistic. What is your plan? And they said, well, we've got we to gotta, uh, suspend him for four games. That's our, our school policy. I said, look, man, I'm going to a maximum security prison in Texas next weekend to go speak to a bunch of inmates all day long and share this coffee bean story. Give me Natrez for a weekend. Give him to me. Let me have him for a weekend, and let's see what happens. Kirby signed off on it. The AD signed off on it. The kid's mom, Matrez's mom, signed off on it. So I pick up Matrez at the airport, man, and we're going into the prison. And I'm telling Matrez on the way in, Matrez, I want you to look at this crowd of people when you walk in this prison. I want you to see how many black faces look back at you, Matrez. Because here's the realities of it, Jim. This is, you know, one out of every four African-American men, one out of every four black guys in this country is in the criminal justice system, man. This is 6.5% of your population, Jim. That makes up almost 50% of your prison population. Something, and that's what I'm telling Natrez, man, something is wrong in America. You know this already, though. But I want you to look at the numbers, man. I want you to see this for yourself. You know? And so I take Natrez in there, and he's just shocked. He's just in awe because you know, the environment, is, it's, it's electrifying. First of all, you're inside of a maximum security prison, but he's looking back in this crowd, and so many people look like him. And what I didn't tell Natrez is that I told Georgia, give me a highlight reel of Natrez, and I have a PowerPoint that plays during my presentation. And I put Natrez's highlight film at the end of the PowerPoint. And after I got my presentation done, I said, hey, man, I want you all to watch something. And sports is king in prison. Your show is big in prison, Jim. I mean, it's, it, it, prison's all about, prison, if prison's all about race, if race is king, sports is next, man. Sports right. is right up there. And so I showed this highlight film of Natrez making tackles against Notre Dame and all these big schools in the SEC and and these guys are ooing and on. And I'm like, man, that guy's pretty good, huh? And everybody in the crowd's like, man, yeah, man, he's good. And I said, well, it's too bad he's not playing against University of Missouri today with his teammates. He's over here sitting at that table. And I point to Natrez over there. And Natrez is just, I mean, he's just pale. He's like, oh, man. You know, as he's sitting over there at the table, I said, when I get done with this presentation, guys, my brothers, you know, my brothers that are in prison, because I'm an, in, I'm, I'm an ex-con, I said, I want, you, I want you all to go over there and talk to Natrez and tell him about the choices he's making. And, man, after this presentation, Jim, and every black guy in the room swarms around the trez, man. And you can hear him like, man, what are you doing, little brother? What's wrong, man? Why are you going to be in here with us, man? And so this became a, uh, a, a deal, like almost like a, a calling to do with NCAA athletes that have, you know, have gotten into trouble, substance abuse issues, to take them through to Texas, a Texas maximum security prison and show them what the consequences of their decisions are. And when I talk to these teams, Jim, I go in there. And I do my presentation. At the end of my presentation, and, and I've been doing this for a long time, way before you know, the murder of George Floyd and, and the Black Lives Matter movement got real big this summer, you know, I've been going in front of these teams and telling these guys at the end of the presentation, hey, but what I'm about to say to you, you, know, you can take what I'm about to say from a guy that's done seven years and three months in a maximum security penitentiary, literally fought Nazis to, to earn the right where he was and fought every black gang there was. You can take it from that perspective. Or the perspective of a guy that, you know, when I got out of prison, Jim, I went back and got a master's in criminal justice. And, and, and I tell him that today I'm a criminal justice professor, Jim, at the University of Houston downtown. And I, I actually teach a class called Prisons in America. If you can imagine that, what world does that happen in, that a guy that was in prison in America four and a half years ago teaches about prison in America to the next generation of criminal justice practitioners. But I tell these guys, you can take it from either level you want. But if you're a black man in this country... You cannot afford to get caught up in this criminal justice. You can't do the same things the white guys do. And that's what I tell these guys in this room. You can't do the same things you see your white friends doing, man, because the system is not made for that. The system is a machine with teeth, and it wants you inside of it. If one out of every four of you is inside the criminal justice system, one out of every four black men is in the system, you can't afford to get your mugshot in. You can't afford to get your fingerprints in. You can't afford to smoke pot because it's a cultural thing, and you see a lot of other people doing it, man. You just can't do it.
because it's a machine with teeth, and if you get into it, it will devour you. And these guys, man, every, everybody in the room, black, white, they're just wide-eyed, and they're looking at me. And I said, man, are y'all picking up what I'm putting down? And every set of eyeballs in that room is shaking their head yes, and they're all saying yes, sir. And what it is, man, Jim, is it's a white guy telling them, the black guys, what they already know. They're, he's confirming it, man. I'm confirming what they already know, man, because they know what the system's like in America. They know it's not fair. They know that, you know, and I tell them, man, there's not just one criminal justice system in this country. There's a black one. There's a white one. There's a brown one. There's a rich one. There's a poor one. Hell, there's one for cops, man. There's all kinds of, and depending on who you are on that spectrum, depends on the kind of justice you're likely to get in this country if you get inside this criminal justice system. And I tell them the same thing. I'm not here to fix the criminal justice system, but I'm here to give you a perspective, a unique perspective of a white guy that has been through this system, man. And I can tell you about this system. And I'm telling you, you cannot afford to get caught up in it. And what happens is that, you know, all the black guys in the room, they respect that because they hear a white guy confirming what they already know. And the white guys in the room are hearing a, a white guy that looks like them telling them something that they, they haven't heard from a lot of white guys. There's not a lot of white guys out there that talk about race, Jim. But I feel like I'm uniquely qualified for it because of the background that I have. You know, the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of white people in America, they haven't experienced racism in its true form. You know, for racism to occur, there has to be an imbalance of power. And in the free world, whites have more power than blacks due to systemic racism. When people say, oh, that, that person of color is a racist against whites, they really mean prejudice, you know. And I have the rare perspective of a white guy who has actually experienced racism against me due to my skin color. You know, in prison, you know, you have one of the only situations where, where blacks can be racist against whites because they control the numbers in there. And to be racist, you have to be able to, to set rules and laws against somebody. Man, that's what racism is. Racism is, is having the power to actually obstruct the way a person lives, you know, prejudice and stuff like that. I mean, a lot of people can experience prejudice. But, but Jim, I've got a unique background where, you know, I grew up – in a, in a home that was raised around the civil rights movement, man. My dad and my mom did a great job of raising us in, 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 a, in, a, in a role of inclusivity for everybody. And then I, you know, then I play sports, and then, and then you know, I, I go off to prison, and, and I get to experience it from the other side. Man, I've been the minority, Jim. I've been the minority. I've been in a situation where racism could exist against me. So I have that unique background, and not a lot of white guys have that. And I don't think enough white people see other white people saying the stuff that I say in these rooms, Jim. Damon, I agree with you. There's nothing that you just said that I do not agree with. I agree with everything you just said. So to this point, Damon, help me with this. You, you mentioned your master's degree. The fact is you completed that master's degree nearly 10 years to the day that you were sentenced to life in prison. How do you explain that? How were you able to turn your life around the way you were? Was it just the coffee bean or is there more to it than that? How did you do that practically? You know, Jim, I'm in recovery and, and you know, I don't know how much you know, you know about recovery, but, you know, for your listeners out there, addicts and alcoholics, we, in my opinion, we have to have a program of recovery. And my program of recovery gives me the tools necessary to live a normal life. And, and what a program of recovery does is it keeps me accountable. It keeps me humble. It keeps my ego in check. And it makes me a better person. And before I got into a program of recovery, I couldn't do normal things in life, like have a relationship with somebody, because it was always about me. You know, and it, it, that's what it is. Addiction is a very selfish thing, and, and I'm going to always be an addict, Jim. It, the thing about addiction is you never get well. You can get better, but you're never going to get well. So I have a program of recovery, and that's what I've lived with ever since I got into prison. I got into an, an AA group in there, and, and I always got to say, I don't, I don't speak for AA. I mean, the AA people get a little upset if I don't give that disclaimer. I don't, but that's my 12-step program of recovery that I'm in, and I work my steps with my sponsor and I live a life that is of service. And what I have found out in my life of service that if I'm out there looking for ways to be useful to society, looking for ways to be part of the solution instead of part of the problem, and looking for ways to serve others and not serve Damon, then these amazing things happen in my life. I call them God things. And, and I, you know, then I go in these rooms, I realize that there's people from all different religions, and that's great. Everybody can believe in whatever they want to believe in. But the universal law is that if, you know, if you're out there doing good, good things can come back to you. And, and, but you've got to do this good from your heart. And I go out there, and I try to share this message. I try to impact as many people as possible. And those amazing things have happened in my life, one after another. I call them, like I said, I call them God things. And, and I started dating this woman named Kendall Romero. And Kendall and I, Kendall's a nurse practitioner, so she's got a master's, and she's you know, a very successful person. And she's, 
she's let me into her world. She's got this, you know, she's got this little six-year-old daughter at the time when we start dating, and you know, she's let me into her world. And and I'm telling Kendall, this is back in 2018. I'm telling her, you know, I've always wanted to go back to school, get a math. And I keep telling her about it, wanting to go back to school, wanting to go back to school. And finally, she says, you know what? If you're going to do it, do it. And quit, just quit talking about it. If you're going to do it, do it. But don't talk about it. You talk to people all the time about being motivated to go do stuff and, and, and getting up and taking action. Take some action. And it was, that was it. That's what spurred me into it, Jim. So I signed up and I went and uh, enrolled at Lamar University in Beaumont, where I live. And it, you know, it took me a year. I got the entire master's done in one year. And once that master's was completed, um, it was May 17, 2009. One day shy of the 10 years, 10-year anniversary when I got sentenced to life in prison, May 18, 2009. My book, The Change Agent, starts off on May 18, 2009. It's called Rock Bottom. That's the first chapter. And, and May 17, 2019, one day shy of 10 years, I'm given a commencement speech at my own master's graduation at the Lamar University um, at the uh, Montaigne Center, the big graduation ceremony in May. I'm giving the commencement speech, and I'm telling these graduates, you know, you can do anything you set your mind to, anything you want to do. Don't ever let anybody hold you back. And so that was the one day shy of 10-year anniversary, but I went ahead and just outdid that. And the next day, May 18, 2019, on the 10-year anniversary, at 1 o'clock, the same time the SWAT, the same time the jury came back and gave me life in prison, I got married to Kendall that day. Hmm. And so my, my 10-year anniversary of getting sentenced to life in prison became my marriage date, and it became first the, the big chapter in my life of having this life with another person and this relationship that I've never been able to have before, but because of a program of recovery, I'm now able to have relationships, and now I can be a, a husband, and I can be a stepfather, and I can be a role model in society. Hmm. So, Damon, you've got two books now. You mentioned Change, Change Agent. You've got two books. If people want to find the books, where do they find the books? Uh, you know, my books are available anywhere books are sold. Um, they're available on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, anywhere. My my website, DamonWest.org, is where you find. You know, if you wanted me to come speak to your group, team, organization, send an email through there. But the books are also on the website. You can go anywhere. Uh, books are sold. Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, whatever. I got actually got another book coming out in November with John Gordon again. It's going to be called The Coffee Bean for Kids. So we made a children's book out of it. So that'll be coming out in November, too. Be looking for that. Absolutely. So, Damon, for instance, you mentioned that if people want you to come and speak, you can. Of course, traveling is very hard right now. So you're doing a lot of this through Zoom. In fact, you're actually giving away the message. You do not need to do that. Why do you do that? So, Jim, this is, you know, about the second day of the coronavirus stuff. I mean, the last presentations I did in March were the, the Timberwolves when they came to play the Rockets on, like, March 9th. And then Walmart. I went to speak to 500 Walmart executives from their health and wellness division. I'm speaking, I mean, this is the biggest employer in America. I'm finally getting in front of them, and I'm speaking to an NBA pro team. And then everything shuts down. And, and I'm, I'm at home, and, I, and I, I'm not going to lie to you, Jim. I go through my days where I'm the carrot and I'm the egg. And, and it was one of those mornings that I woke up, and I was like, you know what, man? You can either be upset about this, or you can find a way to get in there and be part of the solution. And I you know, got in touch with a friend of mine named Lisa Spain, and Lisa and I, she's a She's a consultant, and she's got this platform with Zoom. And I said, Lisa, look, I need to use your platform. We need to team up together and give away this coffee bean message because the world is in a pot of boiling water right now. And this is, this is back in March, man, and you know where it went from there. I mean, the pot of water just got hotter and hotter and bigger and bigger. But I went out there and, and put a message out there on Twitter. I put a message out on every social media platform. Hey, if you're a group, a team, organization, you need, you know, you need some positivity in your world – you know, get in touch with me. We'll do a presentation for free. And I mean, Jim, people swarm to it. Seventy-five, a hundred, you know, Zoom calls later, and here we are. You know, the pandemic is. We're going to the month of August, but I've done so many of these for free because I believe in that coffee bean message, Jim, and I believe that the world needs it right now. We are in a giant pot of boiling water, and this was just with COVID. You know, then you had the murder of George Floyd. You know, and and the world became hotter and hotter, and you saw. What's happened since then, the world needs that coffee bean message, man, because that coffee bean message tells people that no matter what's going on around you, man, you don't control that, but you control your response to it. And you've really got three choices how you're going to respond. You can be sad and soft and weak like the carrot or hard and mad and mean like the egg, or you can, you can be like that coffee bean that changes its environment and changes it, turns that pot of boiling water into a pot of coffee. And that's, that's how we're going to get out of this, Jim. You're going to get out of this by having a bunch of other people – 
go out there and become coffee beans, having people listen, man. And that's what I tell people all the time. With the subject of race, you know, people say, hey, well, Damon, that's good, man. Your, your perspective is unique, and, and they love the message. How do you fix it? The way to fix it, Jim, the way to fix it is by listening, man. you got to listen, first of all, man. And, and there's, you know, because not enough whites have ever experienced, you know, racism. They've, they've experienced, you can experience prejudice of any race, but, but whites don't know anything about racism, man, because whites have always had the power in this country. But if we're going to do that, people that look like me, people that look like you, Jim, we have to start listening. We have to start listening, and then we've got to get people ready on the grassroots level to do something about it, man. Everything that's going to happen big in this country happens grassroots, you know, and that's where it's going to change. That's where the real change happens, and that's where I believe the power of the coffee bean message is. Be a coffee bean, Damon West. Damon, that was everything that I thought it would be and more. I'm so glad that you and I finally came together. I've got nothing but respect and admiration for how you've conducted yourself, the way you rehabilitated yourself, the message that you bring to the world. And you're right. The world does need that message right now. And I'm so glad that you and I came together to have that conversation. Let's be sure that that's not the last time we do that. Jim, hey, look, man, <laughs> like I said in the beginning, let me go back to this. I am so humbled and blown away that I'm on the phone with you doing your show. You want to, when we start having TV shows and stuff, man, I'd love to come on your TV show. I'd love, I'd come on your radio show. You've got my cell phone number, man. I'm, I'm yours whenever you want to talk. Oh, no, whatever I, comes up. And you know, I don't skirt any issues, Jim. I'm not, I'm not somebody, I'm one of the only white speakers out there talking about this kind of stuff, man. Let me know when I can help you. Hey, listen, I, I appreciate that. And I, in no way do I have the experience that you have, but I do have an understanding as somebody who was brought up in an upper middle class family who's white, I've got no idea what it's like. I have no idea what it's like, but I know what you're saying because when I've had made that, I've made that point on my radio program, not everybody wants to hear that. That's true. Now, Damon, the one thing I would say about the podcast, I definitely want to have you on my radio program, the TV shows and everything else, but you needed some room. The reason I have this podcast is for people like you. It's long form. You need real estate. You had to stretch your legs a little bit. I mean, I know you can tailor your message to the room and the audience, but this was a perfect start, and I promise you we will do something else again soon. Oh, man. Hey, man, that's great. Hey, look, I, like I said, the podcast is great. I, I loved it, and that's what I talked to Garrett the other day. I was like, man, I want to, you know, and I gave him some ideas of how to make this podcast unique. No one's ever gone into this subject of race and stuff like that in a podcast form, and I wanted to be done with you because I, I listen to your podcast, Jim, and I know the the kind of people you have on I me mean, you had Nate Boyer on there talking about it but you you know I wanted to be able to so like you said stretch your legs out in this podcast type format so I I'm really appreciative of you and and you know just like what Nate talked about on your podcast man I love this country you love this country and this is the best country on earth but we can do better man we can always do better and there's plenty of ways for improving and we've got to start a systematic program of listening to each other be a coffee bean. Do better. Damon, really appreciate you very, very much. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm going to push this thing out, and we'll definitely get some reaction. I'll share it with you. Love it, Jim, man. Thanks a lot, brother. Appreciate everything. Garrett, Adam, thanks for all the help y'all did in the background, man. Y'all made it happen. Enormous thanks to Damon West for his time and that amazing message. I really hope there was at least one thing in there that you can take and apply to your own life. If you want to read more of his work, you can find both of his books on Amazon and also in all your favorite online book retailers. Now, before you dip out, make sure to get subscribed, leave a review if you can, and drop us a rating. All of that is helpful, and it's all so appreciated. Back next week with episode 138, but until then, here are some voicemails. First new message. Rome, what's up? It's Dr. Dave. Hope you enjoyed your two weeks in the uneducated and idiotic mask-free zone of Wisconsin. I'm just getting tired of all these areas, making all the work that docs like me have done over the last few months look terrible. People just stop with all this stupid crap about not wearing your mask. Don't open places like Disney World because now the NBA and the MLS are no longer in a bubble. Stop being stupid idiots. Later. Message saved. Next message. Jim Rome, Eric Gilson, and up in Napa. Dude, can't believe you're talking about bricks and Hawk as your guru. Oh, man. Unbelievable. Yeah, he's even right. There are no breaks in bricks. You can't take a two-hour break. It's one on top of the other. Man, thanks so much for the content over the last hundred days of this damn pandemic. You guys are back up here in Ever Napa. Just let me know. Thanks for talking fitness and bricks. Hopefully the clones will get a little more fit because of your influence. Good night now. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Rob, you know who it is? It's Fizzle. What's Fizzle like? And I heard you was in my neck of the woods. out in my Wichita. You think you could loan me like a hundred or a couple hundred?
luck. Come on, Jimmy. Swing down to Wichita. Give your boy a couple of honey. What's cracking lady? Message deleted. Next message. Pimp in the box. What up? This is J-Matt from the 561. Just want to tell you, bro, you are the shit. Keep inspiring every day, bro. Every day. Message saved. Next message. Rome, Justin in Melbourne. I hope you're enjoying the Rome family vacation. But when you're the voicemail champ, there are no vacations. That's what I love about the access to the voicemail. It's always there for me. And I will continue to grind week in, week out. Enjoy yourself. Can't wait for you to get back. This is how the grinders do it. Message saved. Next message. Jimmy, hey man, hope you uh, are having a great time out there in Wisco. I'm enjoying the pictures. The Iguodala interview was pretty damn hot. The guy is smart as a whip. Hey, listen, breaking news. Parody Larry got through a call today. Shit, what the hell is happening to the world? I'm out. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim. Steven Centerfell. Wore the heck out of Susie, man. Wow. Even that must have given you goosebumps. You've been on the air forever. Beautiful stuff. Hall of Fame. One thing about Wisconsin and, and the Midwest, there are one, there is, I can't talk. See, that's why I don't call. There's one insect that's wonderful up there in the Midwest, especially in Wisconsin. At this time of year, you might hit the jackpot. Fireflies, they're gorgeous. Bring the kids out if you haven't already, and you probably have. Take care. Message saved. You have no more messages. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.